Hello, and welcome. I'm Dr. Christina Spaulding, and this is the Research Bites podcast brought to you by Science Matters Academy of Animal Behavior. We foster conversations about science and its application to animal training and behavior in an effort to improve well-being for animals and the people they live with. Please enjoy geeking out about the science of behavior. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a moment to let you know that my next Unlocking Resilience course is starting on March 16th. The course is a 16-week-long deep dive into the effects of stress on behavior and what we can do to help animals cope better with that stress. The course runs live and includes 16 one-hour lectures. You also have the option to listen to the lecture recordings. Full students also attend weekly live discussion sessions with myself and other students, as well as complete assignments. The discussions and assignments focus on how to apply the course material to working with animals. Full students will also earn a certificate and advertising logo upon successful completion of the course. Previous students have described the course as mind-blowing and life-changing. Don't miss your chance to secure your spot. Get details or register at my website, www.sciencemattersllc.com. Hello. This podcast episode, I will be talking to Dr. Emily Bray. Dr. Bray is a postdoctoral research associate at the Arizona Canine Cognition Center in the College of Veterinary Medicine and at Canine Companions, providing service dogs to people with disabilities. She earned her undergraduate degree at Duke University, completing a senior thesis at the Duke Canine Cognition Center investigating the impact of context on self-control in pet dogs. She then went on to earn a PhD from the Department of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. For her dissertation, she partnered with The Seeing Eye to conduct a longitudinal study investigating the development of behavior and cognition in dogs. More recently, in her postdoctoral research, she develops and implements cognitive tasks in hundreds of dogs from canine companions population. Let's get started. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the Research Bites podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Yeah, me too. This is my favorite thing. We have to just geek out about science and behavior. So usually I like to start with kind of just a little bit of information on who you are and how you got here and, and what brought you to the point where you're researching sort of cognition and, and evolution in dogs. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up with dogs. I'm from a family of veterinarians. My parents are both vets. And so when I went to college, I sort of gravitated toward uh, at the time, they had just started the Duke Canine Cognition Center. So I was kind of at the right place at the right time. And I just started volunteering there because, A, I miss my dogs at home. But also, I had taken some classes at Duke and was really became intrigued by the idea of, you know, studying dogs in a scientific way and learning about domestication. You know, they've co-evolved with our own species for thousands of years and how that affects how they think and problem solve and, and how we interact with them. Uh, so it was really just kind of a marriage of all my interests and a really cool place to do it. And so then my senior year, uh, I ended up doing a thesis in the lab and that led me 
to go out to California to Canine Companions, which is a nationwide service dog organization. And they basically breed and raise and train dogs and place them with people with disabilities. And it was so cool to be able to work with those dogs and see, you know, their problem solving skills and sort of start to dive into what it takes kind of environmentally or even from a genetic perspective, right, to to have dogs that can perform these tasks. And so I was really fascinated by this. And then I realized I could go to grad school and kind of continue studying this. So I, I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania and working actually with a guide dog organization. So the Seeing Eye on the East Coast. And that was cool, too, because, you know, it was still working dogs, but they have a different task and sort of a different temperament. And so that was really interesting. And then when I graduated, it I ended up doing taking a postdoc, which is what my current role is. I've been here almost six years now. And so I went back out to Canine Companions and then also paired up with the University of Arizona, who has the Arizona Canine Cognition Center. And we've been able to do a lot of really fun longitudinal studies. So kind of looking at puppies from birth until completion of these working dog programs to, again, really dive into this holistic picture of, you know, what are the factors that make a good working dog, but also just how does cognition develop in general in dogs and how that kind of interfaces with our own species and and all sorts of really cool questions like that. So yeah, that's where I came from and how I ended up where I am today, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I, I think it's really important, this research, especially these longitudinal studies, right? Because it's, we really have almost nothing on canine development. I, I mean, there's very little mm-hmm. research, at least from a behavioral standpoint. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very exciting to me. And I can also tell you to many of my students and other, you know, trainers that I work with that these studies are coming out because we just don't have anything. So Before we jump into the specifics of the research, I wonder if you can kind of talk a little bit about the working dog population and how it may be similar and different from the pet dog population, which or even the shelter dog population. (laughs) Great, great. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's interesting, too, because even among working dog populations, there's these differences. So, for example, when I was at Duke, we worked with the dogs at Canine Companions. And so those Again, our purpose-bred service dogs. And so these are these are dogs that are trained to do tasks. So basically, you know, they need to be attentive to humans, obedient, right? But also some problem-solving skills involved. And then also have temperaments that are very calm because they need to be appropriate in public. And honestly, a lot of their job is sort of being invisible for a lot of the day, right? While the human goes about their day-to-day life. You can contrast that a little bit with, you know, a working dog like a guide dog, where, again, you know, you need an appropriate in public temperament, but they're a little bit more dependent problem solving. And sometimes, you know, you hear about this idea of like willful disobedience. So the handler might ask something, but the dog has more information sight than the person asking them. And so they have to know in certain situations like, oh, you're asking me to cross the street, but I see that there's a car and I can't do that. And I'm going to choose to not do that. So there's kind of a bit more of a, you know, not blindly following direction, but assessing the situation and responding appropriately. And then that's even in contrast to another group that we worked with when I was at Duke as an undergrad were IED detection dogs. 
And so these are dogs that are either deployed in the military or even sort of, you know, like police dogs can go into a situation and, and do detection work, basically. And those dogs can be, I, th- I believe they would refer to them as high drive, right? So it's funny because in a lot of circumstances, they're the exact same breed, right? Like you have Labrador Retrievers. But if you compare like a Canine Companions Labrador Retriever, which is kind of, you know, energy levels are like a little bit above comatose, right? To uh, to an IED Detection Labrador Retriever, that's like very high energy. They look like completely different dogs. And they're, you know, completely capable of doing their respective jobs. But probably like the IED Detection Dog would not be the best service dog and vice versa. So... And in terms of pet dogs, I think there you're just going to get a wider variety. And but, you know, there could be a lot of similarity, right? Like you have some really calm pet dogs. You have some really energetic pet dogs. So I think when you talk about certain types of working dogs, it's just a lot more homogenous in what you would expect to see from from a dog kind of based on the task that it's been trained for and in in some cases not all bred for right yeah so and those are those are kind of the main dogs that I've worked with but obviously there's also hunting dogs you know there's a lot of roles that dogs play in our society yeah it's really interesting and and we may come back to this if if we have time because there's other things I want to make sure we get to but I think this problem solving component is something that I'm particularly interested in because as you said you know for example looking at guide dogs and this idea of willful disobedience the kind of having well, this mixed bag of agency, really, right? So to some degree, they're really expected to follow through on the cues that they're being given, but then they also have to make decisions about when not to follow through. And I, I think that that dynamic and the way that they probably see and interact with the world is very different from a pet dog. I mean, they're still all dogs, right? So there's going to be lots yeah. of commonalities, but you know, pet dogs who often are kind of discouraged really from making any decisions on their own, right? Not necessarily pets that are owned by people like us, where we pay a lot more attention to giving them a lot more choice. But I think your typical pet dog is really not supposed to problem solve. They're not, you know. Right. The problem solving might get them in trouble. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So (laughs) that's not what we want. To me, problem solving comes with this perception that you have the ability to interact with your world in such a way that leads to sort of favorable outcomes for you. And that then makes me start thinking of things like resilience. And so I wonder, and I don't know if you've looked at this or not, or if you have an answer for this, because I did not prepare you for this question. But I wonder if you if you feel like guide dogs, for example, that have more permission to make some of their own decisions, if you feel like that impacts their stress resiliency in any way, or if if that's just something that we don't know? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. And I feel like it probably a little bit, kind of like in humans, right, depends on the dog. Like you can imagine a dog that's really happy when you're like, just tell me what to do. And like, that's all they want. Whereas you could imagine another dog right where it's sort of like want like happier with the freedom to do what they want to do right and it's interesting too because I feel like the to find the answer is difficult and it it reminds me of sort of like something that we're always grappling with as we are like devising experiments right to kind of 
pinpoint, you know, what is a dog's problem solving ability or how are they seeing the world? But it's always kind of tied up in this question of like, you know, we have a test. And then to us as the human, we're like, well, here's the answer or right. Or here's what we think the answer should be. But it's like, is the dog even is that even a desirable outcome for the dog? Are they interpreting it that way? And then the scenarios where we give them a problem and then they solve it, but not in a way that we anticipated. And we're like, well, how do we even measure that? <laughs> you know, so so I feel like it's all kind of related, right? Because it problem solving implies that there's a solution to this problem. But it's like, A, are they even seeing this as a problem or a barrier? And and right. And like, is our solution, is that even a viable solution for that? Right. So it's it gets a little complicated, but that's the fun part, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> that's why behavior is so interesting. Yes, yes. So I think I have self-control on the list, but I think maybe what we'll start with is this relationship between maternal care and guide dog success. And I know that some of the results that you've gotten from this research, at least to me, seems counterintuitive. I mean, I understand where it's coming from, but what we've what you found in your research is that, and correct me if I'm phrasing this wrong, but that puppies that experience sort of more intense, more involved maternal care actually didn't do as well in the program, the working dog. In the guide dog program. Guide dog program? Yes. Yeah. Yes. In the guide dog. Yes, that is what we found. And I too initially thought this was counterintuitive. I think, I mean, first of all, just to go back a little bit, because I think this speaks a bit to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the podcast, which is basically that in terms of dog behavior, there's so much we don't know. And so I feel like maternal care is one of those areas where I actually, the whole reason I started studying it is when I started grad school, my advisors, Robert Seiferth and Dorothy Cheney, did not study dogs. They actually studied vervet monkeys and baboons in Africa. And so they said, you know what, you should go to Kenya and just observe animals in the wild. Like that's, you know, step one, if you want to do animal behavior. Obviously, I'm not going to say no to that. I was going to say, um, that sounds great. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I actually went and spent a summer with spotted hyenas in the Mara, which a whole campsite out of MSU. And so... That what was really cool is I was paired with this graduate student and her whole project revolved around mothering in hyenas, which had never occurred to me to study. But as I was, you know, at the dens and it was always, you know, dawn and dusk where the, the mothers kind of come and nurse or provision their their cub. It made me think about dogs. And I'm like, well, what do we know about this in dogs? should be way easier to study this, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know. And so when I came back, that's what, what I wanted to start with. And I and I paired with the CNI, which is a guide dog organization. And what's great is that they those dogs are purpose bred. So they have like a breeding center. And so, you know, it's really easy to videotape and sort of, you know, the the dam, the the mother dog's wealth or birth into like, you know, those like plastic kiddie pools. <laughs> so kind of like the puppies are contained for the first few weeks. And then the mom, the mothers have the option of sort of being in the pool, interacting with the puppies or sort of elsewhere, you know, in, in the area. And so you can quantify the mothering style. So like how much of the time is the mother choosing to interact with nurse, lick, groom, touch her puppies versus sort of like, I'm over this. You know, she's sort of like off somewhere else. And 
And you do get a spectrum. I will say, you know, this is a working dog organization. These are valuable dogs. They're not going to like let the puppies be abandoned. Right. But but there's a range. And so, yeah, so we looked at that and then we followed the puppies through. We tested them at six weeks, which honestly, I think was a little young. It was hard to sort of get them motivated. They weren't food motivated yet. But but then we retested them on some like, you know, cognitive games when they entered training. I think that was around a year, year and a half. And then they get an outcome and the, right. They either graduate as a guide dog or a change of career, right? They become right. a pet dog or, you know, whatever, whatever their destiny holds. And but then we could go back and look and see, right, okay, based on, you know, the maternal style. And we just looked basically the the time period that we really focused in on was the second week of life, which is really early in their life, right? Like their eyes aren't open, but they're having these interactions with their mother, obviously. And and then they go on and live their lives. And we can see is there any association between that time period with their mother and, and the amount of maternal care they were experiencing and their later outcome. And we do find that there's there's associations with their behaviors, but then kind of like the big finding was this association with their outcome. And dogs who had puppies who had these more hands-off kind of laissez-faire mothers were more likely to be guides, whereas the puppies who had the really like hands-on helicopter mothers they were not as likely to become working guides. So this seemed counterintuitive, right? Because on the one hand, you would expect, right, like isn't being nurtured a good thing. I think there's, there's a few, we don't know exactly why, right? But there's a few hypotheses and I don't think they're mutually exclusive, right? So, so one idea is that, you know, they're getting a little bit of tough love. They're having to be a little bit more independent. And given that as a guide dog, they're going to need to be, as we were talking about, making these independent decisions, sort of fending for themselves a bit, like building resilience, perhaps right back to this idea of resilience. That is maybe a good thing for them in this trajectory of a working career as a guide. Another thing that we noticed, because we were also taking some biological measures concurrently, is that the mothers who were more mothery, right, they're spending more time with their puppies, they had higher baseline cortisol levels. So cortisol is a stress hormone and we can measure that through saliva. So it seems like, you know, there may be a little bit higher stress overall. And also if we do a little experiment where we would temporarily remove half of their litter, and this is like a pretty common occurrence because, you know, they weigh the puppies every day, but like a mild stressor perhaps, right? The peak in cortisol that occurs is higher in the more motherly mothers than the kind of more laissez-faire mothers. So that could be part of the picture as well, right? Maybe it's if you have a more stressed in general mother, that has negative implications for later becoming a guide. That's really interesting because I'm sure you reported that in the paper, but I didn't remember that little bit about cortisol. It's been a little while since I've read the, the paper closely. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So then I started thinking, you know, I wonder if those mothers, maybe that more intense mothering was somewhat anxiety driven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so plus they could have, you know, if they had higher baseline cortisol, then the puppies were exposed to more cortisol. You exposed know. to that. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So there's different pathways. Yeah. And so, so right. So it is interesting. And then the other thing that we found was we looked specifically at nursing and 
and the position in which the mother's nurse from. And basically, we sort of broke it down into three broad categories. So one we called ventral nursing, and that's like the mother's on her belly, right? So so kind of right with the puppies or lateral nursing and the mother's. This is by far the most common when the mother's sort of on her side. They say the milk bars open and, and you know, they're right at again, right at the puppy's level. And it's easy for them to kind of latch on and nurse. The third type we call vertical nursing. And that is, and again, this is in the second week. So it's actually pretty rare. It becomes much more common as the puppies get older. And I think partly it's probably, so, so vertical nursing is she's sitting or standing while nursing. I think when the puppies are older, that's probably a function of her like trying to get away. Right. Flash on right. They're like, okay, I'm stuck here now. But we did see, you know, again, variation in how much mothers engaged in this behavior early on. And what we found is that puppies who had like these mothers that spent more time vertically nursing them. And again, it's not much time in the grand scheme of things. It's a rare type of nursing. But if that was the case, they were more likely to be successful as guides. And again, this maybe fits into this narrative of that's a kind of more difficult nursing position, right? They're kind of having to fight for it. So it's perhaps, again, building this sort of resilience or independence that might serve them well as a guide. Right. All of this is just speculation. Right, exactly. And I think this is a really nice illustration of it's like, well, we have one study. But the thing about (laughs) science, right, is that it like, now you have this one study and you, you've got some information and now we have like 20 more questions. Yes. That Well, and so, but speaking to that, so absolutely. And that, I mean, that's the thing about, you know, love it or hate it right, right about right. science, right? It's always generating more questions. But what's been really cool is that during my postdoc, we did a follow-up study. And so in the canine companions dogs, which we talked about earlier, right, are different than guide dogs. They're working dogs, right? So there's similarities, but then there's differences in, you know, what is expected from them as adults. And and so then what that looks like in terms of their skills. And so what was cool is that we basically tripled the sample size of our study. We also looked, Canine Companions is unique from the CNI in that at the CNI, they were all at this breeding center. At Canine Companions, some of the, a subset of puppies are born and raised at a breeding center. And then a subset are actually born and raised in volunteer homes of people that live within driving distance of the main campus. And so anyway, we, you know, counterbalanced half of our puppies were in one environment and half in the other. And we enrolled 59 litters. So it ended up being 235 puppies. We only did, we followed like three to five on average, four puppies from each litter, because when we did the statistical analyses, you kind of get more bang for your buck to enroll more litters with less puppies or, you know, following not the whole litter of puppies. And basically, I think it ended up with COVID and whatnot taking about five years where, again, we videotaped the the mothers and their puppies, you know, for those first three weeks and then followed all the puppies through to their outcome in the service program. And so, we, this is not published. We're I was just going to ask because I'm like, I don't remember seeing this. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's a top, I'm the draft on my computer. Yeah, so it takes a long time. It's coming soon. It takes a long time for sure. But exciting because like, as you said, you know, if you have one study, it's like, okay, great. That's one study, but you want to see replication or, or, you know, what, what happens. So preliminarily what we find, and this is really interesting because again, 
this is a different population of working dogs. So again, we find a strong effect of mothering in that, you know, first, second, third week of life on outcome in a working dog program. Interestingly, though, the really hands-on mothers produce really great service dogs. <laughs> so it, it, it's interesting because it kind of is like, oh, well, that's the opposite of what you found. And yet, I think it's consistent because you're wanting these dogs, right, that are really human-focused, kind of obedient as compared to maybe these more like independent minded. And I think it is, it's also mapping on to the behaviors that we're seeing, right? So in the guide dogs, the less mothered puppies were better at an independent problem solving task. Whereas here, the more mothered puppies, you know, are showing more gazing to human during our human interest tasks. So so it's interesting. But yeah, I mean, to your point of sort of like, you know, you have to keep doing the studies to really, really tease apart, right? Like it's not like a one size fits all like, oh, now, you know, all the dogs who mother too much are bad dogs. It's like, no, I think it depends on the goals and the context yep. and what population they're from. Right. So and the, and and it's still only laboratories, right. and gold right, retrievers. So then you have like, all the other breeds, which I'd love to do some sort of study with like, you know, pet dogs and many breeds and see sort of what what panning out. But, you know, thoughts for the future. Yeah. And it's so cool because I was going to ask you, I was going to say, well, what if you ran this study in, you know, <laughs> the the service dogs? Would you expect to see something different in that population? And in fact, you did. So that <laughs> yeah. is very cool. Well, now I can say it's kind of cheating, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, I love what you were saying about it. You know, it's not necessarily good or bad, but it sort of depends on what your goals are and what, you know, the skill set that you need these particular dogs to have. And it makes so much sense. Of course, I think we have to be careful in science when something makes a lot of sense, because then sometimes you sort of grab onto it maybe a little too strongly and yes, you miss yes. some of the nuances. But I think it's really, really cool that you did this follow-up study with a much larger sample size in a different population. So that is really, really interesting. Did you look at the cortisol le levels in those moms too? So no, we did. So we actually looked at, so in the first study, we looked at cortisol after the puppies were born over those first few weeks. In this study, we actually, so a kind of additional question we had that would be really helpful, right, is can you tell what kind of mother a dog will be? <laughs> so we basically took measures from the mother, from the dams before they became mothers or before they were mothers of the litter that we followed, right, because they weren't all first parity. And so we took behavioral measures in terms both kind of like in-person cognitive tests and like questionnaire measures as filled out by puppy raisers and the people that knew the dogs. And we did do some cortisol sampling. However, I do, I if I could do it again, I would do it again. <laughs> like, like we basically only had like a single measure. And I think like when we did the CNI study, we took three measures over time and you average them because cortisol is actually really messy and complicated to measure so so we did but i i wouldn't actually put any like i'm not confident in those findings like i feel like there was because the other thing that mm -hmm. complicated it was we when we took the cortisol like because of logistics half the mothers we took it we did this cognitive testing and we kind of took it 
in between the two sessions. Like they've been in, they've been resting for an hour. So we're like, technically that should be fine. And then the others, we just took them on a random day, had them rest for an hour and then took the cortisol. And like, so then a, our sample was like half the size. Right. And it was, it, I think it wasn't consistent enough to really draw any firm conclusions, basically. Yeah, yeah, and that's understandable. And and for the listeners, too, the, one, one of the many tricky things about cortisol is all it tells you is the stress level of the dog, which is you can kind of think that of that as being like the arousal level. And so it doesn't say if the dog is feeling anxious or excitedly happy. You know, it doesn't tell us sort of that flavor of the, like the experience. Valence, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, and it's it's such a specific point in time, hence why normally you would kind of sample over multiple days and then average. And yeah. Yeah. And just logistically, we did. We were able to do that. And I I can't I wish I could remember the name of the researchers, but I was just recently reading, I think, a review article. I think it was a it was maybe Daskalakis. I don't know if I have that last name wrong, but they were talking about how they feel like maybe measuring cortisol we should start looking at the pattern of cortisol release instead of, like you said, those single points in time, because that may be more informative than just looking yes. at, you know, single points in time. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the hormone stuff in general is very complicated. Yes. Sort of dig- I think it's easy to sort of be like, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we just right, take this one thing and then we can deduce whatever. But it's it's complicated. So, yeah. 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 So I could talk about this forever, but I do want to get to some of the other things that you have been working on. So one of the other things you've been doing, which I think is really, really cool and kind of related to what we've been talking about, is looking at cognitive development in dogs. And here again, you did longitudinal studies. So you looked at puppies. I think you tested them at eight weeks and then nine weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like between eight and 10 weeks, basically. So around that eight to nine week window. Yeah. And then again at like a year, year and a a half. half. Yeah. And so certain skills seem to be fairly well developed in those nine weekish old Mm -hmm. puppies. But then there were other skills like some of the executive function and impulse control (laughs) that seemed to take longer, which is super interesting because that's what we see in humans too, right? And just anecdotally in dogs, that makes a lot of sense. So can you talk a little bit more about your findings about the cognitive development? Yeah, sure. Right. So this study was, again, in the canine companions population. And a lot of that is sort of convenience, right? So because they, so so their breeding program is based in Northern California, which is actually where I'm based, which people are often surprised to learn, seeing as I am, you know, affiliated with the University of Arizona. But I, I like to say I live at the field site in, you know, Santa Rosa, California, which is great place to live. But so basically all of the puppies come through our canine early development center around eight weeks of age. They get their vaccines. You know, our our vets take a look at them, make sure everything is good. And then they get sent around the country to puppy raisers where they are then raised and then returned to one of six campuses nationwide to begin their professional training when they're about a year and a half. So that was the impetus really like, out mm-hmm. of convenience of choosing those two ages basically but it's great because again I, th- I mentioned with the CNI dogs we had test we'd done some testing when they were six weeks which they could do but I think was was maybe too young for them to fully engage 
what's really cool is like eight weeks, which is still pretty young, but they're for the most part food motivated. And and really, they're able to do all of the same tasks that we later do with them as adults with very little modification. And there's one sort of problem solving task that we don't do with the puppies that we do with the adults, but everything else they can do. But as you mentioned, <laughs> the level at which they perform on the task right, varies. And some of them, they're already at adult levels. Um, and this is, this is things like sensory discrimination tasks, right? So if you put a plate of food in front of them, like a blank plate versus one with like a few kibbles on it, like they can see, right. oh, here's one with the kibble, like I should go to that one. Or this is actually much more difficult for them, but they they do it at above chance levels. Like if you have two metal food bowls and you, like you put your hand over each one, but you only, but you drop a kibble in one, but not the other. So there's an auditory cue coming from one side, but not the other. Theoretically, right, they follow the auditory cue. Again, they're not great at it. They're at 60%, but they are technically above chance. And then the the final one in that kind of sensory discrimination category is an odor discrimination. So you have sort of baited tube, right, where one has food and one doesn't. And you see like how how much time do they spend sniffing around the one that has food? And like they're very good at sniffing at the one that has food. So, right. So like they can smell, you know, and, and and not only can they, like, like we knew, right, that they can see, they can hear, they can smell, but that they can also then kind of make rational, logical decisions using that information, which isn't a bygone conclusion, right? So, so they're able to do that basically, like, at the same level that we see when we test them at 18 months. But as you alluded to, then there are these tasks that there's a lot of room for improvement still. And I think the the very biggest one is impulse control. And I think this very much mirrors what we see in our own species where what I think you're like 20 before somewhere in the 20s. Yeah. 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 And so that's definitely what we see in the puppies as well, that they're it's really difficult for them. And And the way that we test impulse control in a puppy or and in an adult for that matter. Well, I should say there's kind of different flavors of impulse control, right? Like you can think of kind of a classic human example would be would fall into this category of like delay of gratification, right? If it's like, here, I'll give you, you know, one marshmallow now, or if you wait five minutes, you can have three marshmallows, right? Like if you can wait, that's like delay of gratification. But there's other kinds too. And some are sort of more like we call it like motor inhibition. So, so it's kind of about like your body learns a pattern and then can you either reverse that pattern, which can be really difficult, actually, or can you continue doing that pattern even in a face of a sort of salient distraction that's going to tempt you to not do that pattern anymore? And so those are the sorts of scenarios that it's easy to kind of induce in, in, in animal models, right? Because you can use you can capitalize on their like natural behavior. Like if you put food in front of them, they're going to want to go and eat it. And so they learn, okay, if I go this way to get the food, I get the food, but then you can kind of switch it up on them. And like the, the way they've always been going is now blocked and they have to detour. How capable are they of doing that? And so you see varying levels. And the idea is that the better you are at adjusting that's you have better impulse control and so we can kind of measure that by right like how many trials do they succeed or fail on and so like the puppies are failing on a lot of trials right 
as compared to once they reach adult levels, they're much better globally. Individually, you still see a bunch of differences too, right? You could have an adult that still gets your rock every single time. Like they have no impulse control, right? I mean, I'm sure you guys all know dogs like that. So it's kind of a cool task because you see these global patterns, but you also, it, it's interesting in measuring these individual differences as well. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's um, really nice to have that data. And again, you know, we are working in a very specific population. So we have to keep that in mind. But, we, you know, we didn't have anything before. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I will say, especially, so the the task that we use, we call it the cylinder task. And this is actually one that I've been doing since my senior thesis, you know, I don't even know how many years ago at this point. And I did that in pet dogs. So we've done this a lot in pet dogs as well. And what's interesting is like when you compare adult pet dogs to adult canine companions dogs, which we now have like hundreds and hundreds of dogs from both populations doing this task, they're they're almost indistinguishable. So So even though... You know, I'm sure there might be other skills that maybe you would expect canine companion dogs to be better. But there's also kind of the sense, too, of just like, well, yeah, they're actually in some regards, you know, similar to just dogs, right? Right. And these are canine companion dogs that have not yet gone through the training program. Is that correct? So they we test them. For the most part, they're probably, they, they have not completed the training. They're at various stages. And so we typically test them. Normally, they've been on campus at least 10 days, just so, you know, because it's kind of a period of transition when they go from the puppy raiser home onto campus. And the way Canine Companions works is like, as soon as they get to campus, they are assigned a, a training string. And then you have, your, you know, your first semester dogs and then your second semester, right? But we test them pretty early on in the process. I believe, I think there's some work. It's definitely not published. And I'm not even entirely sure of the results, but I think they were basically looking at doing these sorts of tasks with dogs at the beginning of training and the end of training and seeing if it affected it. And I could imagine, you know, depending on the task, it might not affect it at all on a on certain tasks, it might it's it's actually an interesting question. But to your original question, these are dogs sort of early on in training. Granted, when they're out with the puppy raisers, they've focused on basic obedience training. So you know, they can all sit like like your basic commands. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And one of the things I was wondering about is you know I wonder if the dogs that successfully graduate and become service dogs if their impulse control looks any different than the typical pet dog, that would be really interesting yes, to yes. look at. That we have looked at. I mean, we're in the process of looking at it with these dogs that we've tested longitudinally. I believe there's a paper by Evan McLean and Brian Hare. So Brian is the director of the Duke Canine Cognition Center. Evan is the director of the Arizona Canine Cognition Center. But they looked at canine, and this was work that I helped with when I was an undergrad, kind of, because when we first started Canine Companions, before we started these longitudinal studies, we started with the dogs in professional training. And so we did a, this whole battery of tasks with those dogs, including impulse control, but also like social cues. That's a big one. Like, can they follow a point? Right. And so they did that with the 
canine companions dogs and the IED detection dogs. And I believe they found that and then looked for differences in performance levels. Are those associated with outcome? Like, does the dog graduate or not? Right. Because that's sort of the big question. Right. Right. And especially we can do that when they're puppies. Like, that's the would be the biggest. But so what they found, I believe, is that with the service dogs, I think like the human interest test that you saw differences, but like the dogs that graduated showed more interest in humans, right, than the dogs that didn't. And then, oh, what was it with the, I think with the detection dogs, point following, so the dogs that followed points better were more successful IED detection dogs. Granted, I think the outcome, so, so the outcome for service dogs is kind of cut and dry. I say kind of because obviously everything's a little subjective because someone has to deem them able to be graduated or not. But you have at the end of the day, it's like they're placed with the person and they're actively working versus they're not. With the IED detection dogs, I think the like successful outcome is a little bit harder to define, but I think they did some combination of sort of like training reports. And I forget what the exact measure is. I'd have to look back at the paper. But you know, whatever that metric of success, the task, you know, some tasks weren't correlated with it, but then some were. And I think one of them was the the point following, which might, I think their sort of thinking behind that was, you know, if you're directing these dogs from a distance, which they often do, you know, like on long leash or whatever to search certain areas, that that would be a useful skill. But yeah, I mean, our, our honestly, in designing so I believe those tasks we call like the dog cognition test battery. And then we then adapted it to the dog cognition development battery, which is what we've been doing longitudinally. But in sort of picking and refining these tasks, we were trying to cast this broad net, but hoping to hit on areas that seemed like they would be relevant eventually in the context of these jobs, right? So like interest in humans, impulse control, and then some more general skills as well, right? Like the auditory, visual, odor, discrimination, lateralization, like paw preference. That's something that people have sort of been interested in. It's unclear totally why that might matter, but there's been some sort of intriguing findings. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we could go down that road, but I, I, I'm trying to decide what I want to talk about next because you actually have some relatively old papers that you've published on self-control, which I'm super interested in. Mm. But I, I did see some of these preprint articles on the Many Dogs Project. Is that something that you can talk about? Yes, I'd okay. love to. Okay, perfect. Yes. So Many Dogs is a really fun initiative where it's basically this international multi- laboratory collaboration in canine science. And so the idea is that we want as many people that study dogs involved as possible to kind of come together. And the idea is that it will be this in framework to then people will come forward and say, you know, I want to study this. And then everyone, you know, signs up, does the same study, but all at all these different study sites. And that can achieve a bunch of different goals. So like one, you get a really big sample size, hopefully, but you're also needing to set really rigorous methods, right? So that everyone is is actually doing the, the same study to the extent that you can. But then you also have the benefit of, because all these diverse groups are involved, 
there's going to be a lot of different breeds, different culture, right? Like multi-country. And so you can start asking questions about like moderator, right? Like how does breed affect this question that we're interested in? And also the idea is it's very open science. So like every, so if we do a study, so we've done our first study, it was called Many Dogs One, data collection just completed in December, so last month. And so the first thing we did was pre-register it, which basically means we put out in writing, this is exactly what we're going to do so that you can't kind of change it later, right? Oh, this didn't work out. So I'll just change my research question a little bit. Yeah, that's what, exactly. For those like, that don't know, that's what that's about. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, and what's cool, we actually wrote a registered report, which I had not done or heard of before. But the idea is that you actually write up the study where you're like, here's our intro. Here's, our, here's why we're doing it. Here's our methods. Here's exactly what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to analyze it. Do you have everything except the result? <laughs> because you haven't, and I guess the discussion, right? Because you haven't run the study yet. But then you can submit it to a journal and they can accept it. And the cool part is like, they're then committed to publish it, even if you find null results, right? Because that's also uh -huh. kind of a problem in science, yes. right? Yes. Where you do a study, you don't find anything interesting. And so it doesn't get published. Which like, okay, great, because it wasn't interesting, but also that could save someone a lot of time in the future because it's like, we've already done this. It didn't work or right or like this is not even that it didn't work. It's just like, this is what we find that might not be like, you know, the splashiest finding because nothing interesting happened, but it's still good to know. So, so yeah, so it's sort of out there. It's like, we've, we're doing this, committed to doing it this way, and then we're going to find whatever we're going to find and then we'll publish it. And so it's very honest, right? It keeps you honest and it, it puts the science out there regardless of what you find. So, it, so, so, right. So our first study was a pointing study, which is kind of the quintessential canine cognition study. But it, it also can be controversial or at least a people's interpretation of it. So this, we were sort of tackling the question of like under what context do dogs follow points? So there's two um, conditions, one which we call the ostensive condition. And that basically is a fancy word that means like you're calling the dog's attention, you're using their name, you're using a high-pitched voice. And so it's, it's directed towards them. And in infant studies, this is really important. In, like if you're pointing to something that they realize like, oh, you're talking to them this is meant for them to follow versus if it appears that you just do it by like you point to something but it it seems accidental or not directed towards them they're not going to follow it in the same way and so this is a question right like are dogs following like following points and conceptualizing it sort of the way infants do like that they're truly like oh you're talking to me <laughs> like this is relevant to me versus just like Oh, I build up an association with your hand and food. So whether even though whatever your intent is, not that they're thinking in those terms, right? But like I'm just gonna blindly follow whatever finger is nearest to whatever because I think food's gonna be there. So so anyway, the two conditions are this ostensive condition and then a non-ostensive where instead of using you're not looking at the dog, instead of saying their name, you cough. You're like <clears throat> and then and then point. And then basically you can then compare like, okay, depending on the condition, does it affect the um, XE with which the dog 
follows the point. And so, so it's, again, a pretty straightforward question. But then the idea is that we have dozens of labs signed up from multiple different countries, and they have to collect at least 16 dogs, but as many as they want. Every dog that participates also fills out a survey with all this demographic information. So we can kind of look to see, like, does training level, or kind of like some of the questions we were even talking about earlier. And so anyway, that's the idea. Then you have this study with hundreds of dogs, and you can, and and that's just, so that's just the first study. And the hope is that we could use this similar framework and someone could come forward and say, hey, I'm actually really interested in impulse control or I'm really interested in whatever. And so, yeah, so it's kind of fun. It, and it's also it's not completely original. There's other so it's called many dogs. Right. But there's many primates, many babies, many. I think there's a many goat now. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a an up and coming idea, the sort of big teen science approach that could maybe help answer some questions or like we even we were talking about right with the maternal style study where it's like okay cool findings but it's like one study from one lab this sort of helps get around that where we're like oh look a bunch of people did this you know with a standardized method but obviously there's going to be like little idiosyncrasies at each site but if we still find this result then we can maybe be more confident that this is like you know a true phenomenon versus like so it, so it also maybe helps a bit with like, you know, the replicability crisis and, and all right, of that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds very, very exciting. So I, I can't wait to start seeing publications from that. And I'm sure you guys still have data to, you know, analyze and everything. So yes, for the, yeah. I was just going to say for the <laughs> listeners that are wondering what the results are, we probably don't have those yet. I mean, I know you just finished collecting data, but then there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens after that. Yeah, I would say like mid this year, though. Cool. Because because the other benefit of this registered report is right. that the paper is written except right. for the results. So then you kind of just get to stick them in and it yeah, theoretically <laughs> doesn't take as long. We'll see. But yes. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I know there's cool. been a push to start to do some of that. So I think that's a really interesting change is to do these, you know pre-filing of these studies yes. that are happening for these ethical reasons that you were talking about. And before we move on, I just, for the listeners, us researchers can spend a lot of time talking about pointing in dogs. And I think sometimes people are like, why do we care about this? But well, the history behind this is that, gosh, I don't know, in the 90s, early, mid-90s, Brian Hare who we were talking about before, did a study that showed that dogs are better at following human pointing cues than chimpanzees. And this was very interesting because we're much more closely related to chimpanzees. So you would predict that chimpanzees would be better at following pointing cues. And that study was one of sort of, the, I think, the catalysts that sort of launched all of this interest in dogs and our co-evolution with them and why they have these possibly unique abilities. I, I don't know that they are truly unique because they've been doing pointing studies on a lot of other species and find that other species can do it too. But that's kind of the history on this is that they're, you know, dogs appear to have some level of innate ability to follow these human communication gestures. And so that's why there's been so much interest in it because it, why? We want to know why do they have you know, these unique and abilities how, yes. and how and what are the implications and how does that, you know, influence other aspects yes. of their relationship with us. So, so that's why there's so much research on pointing cues in dogs. 
Yes, yes. And we actually did last year. But so as part of, I mean, it was like one of the tasks that we do in our cognitive battery is a pointing study. But we were able to test, I think it was like 375 eight-week-old puppies on pointing, which a lot of the there's been a lot of pointing studies, right? As you mentioned, since the early 2000s, late 90s, but a lot of it has been in adult dogs. And right. So, and there is this question of like, oh yeah, well, they just observe, sit around and observe us all day. Like, great. But like, or like, or is there more of this like potentially innate or, you know, early emerging ability? And so one way to look at that is to test puppies that basically don't have these years of, right now, frankly, just open their eyes like a few weeks prior, right? And so we find that the eight-week-old puppies can do it at above chance. And what was cool, because, again, we use the canine companions dogs and we know their pedigree, we could look and say, this is actually a heritable trait, which means that significant portion of the of the variation that we see, right? Because not every puppy can do it. But when you look at the variation, it's explained a significant portion, about 40%, by their genetics which again sort of implies this this biological preparedness in dog specifically which is cool yeah anyway, yeah that's that really there. interesting yeah we yeah there's you those of you that are listening to this podcast would probably <laughs> be very surprised to see how many papers have been published about the ability of dogs to follow pointing cues and wolves for comparative reasons and well right yes. yeah yeah so I know one of the other things that you're interested in is self-control. And you published a paper, I think, in 2014 about the evolution of self-control. And I'm very interested in self-control. I became interested in self-control, as many of my listeners know, because I have a dog that really, really struggles with this. And I have watched him and how this has impacted his life and our life together and our relationship. And that got me interested in this topic. And I have since learned that in humans, at least, and we're getting increasing evidence that this may be the case in dogs as well, that impulse control or poor impulse, impulse control is linked to sort of mental health disorders in humans and possibly with behavior issues in dogs. And so I think this is where I'm coming from in terms of being so interested in this, because I think it's a quality of life issue. It, it seems like, oh, it's just impulse control. But it actually may be a lot more important than that. So can we just start by having you give the more sort of scientific definition of, of impulse control or self-control? Sure. So the way that I think about impulse control is it's basically having the ability to stop yourself when you're faced with an action that is tempting, but ultimately counterproductive. And as we we touched on a little bit earlier, right, that can kind of take different forms, whether that's delay of gratification or this more motor inhibition or, you know, like how you follow rules and, and that sort of thing. But as you mentioned, I think it really important in humans, it's linked. Well, so poor impulse control is linked to negative outcomes, but also having good impulse control is linked to really positive life outcomes in a, a wide range of, you know, everything from like socioeconomic status and kind of like big global things. And so, but in dogs, as you say, I think it's also really relevant to them and, and a lot of our expectations when it comes to working with them, obviously in things like working roles, but also in companion roles and just sort of, as you say, like quality of life and 
right, how that sort of plays out in the home, right? And what, or with other dogs or other in, in interaction throughout the day. So, so yeah, I think it's really important. And it is something that I studied. This was actually my, my senior thesis was on impulse control in dogs. And I looked at kind of like, again, three different contexts. One would be sort, sort of more this like delay of gratification social context where basically there was a human that was always generous and shared with the dog, but only ever had like one piece of food. And then a stingy experimenter that never shared with the dog, but had you know, five pieces and there was cheese and sort of like, can the dog bypass what they know they're not going to get or what they've learned? Kind of a complicated experiment because there was some reputation formation going on and all this. And even just anyway. Yeah. But so like that's one context. And then others that like the cylinder task that we talked about earlier. And then there's this this game that is often played with infants, but you can do with dogs as well. It's called A, not B. And the idea is that there's two locations and they watch you hide treats in like the A location and they go and they get it three times. So you're building this motor pattern, this expectation. Then you hide it there again. But before you let them retrieve it, you take it out. They watch you do it and you walk it over and you put it in B. And it's the question becomes, can they go to B? And a lot of times they don't, right? Like they just keep going to A because that's hard for them to stop that pre- as even you know i'll do that right right so, right so anyways we had these different contexts and really what that paper found and there's actually since been quite a few papers that have done similar things and they all basically find the same thing where it doesn't really generalize like it's very context specific so like you could have a dog that's really good at one task and then it doesn't transfer to these other contexts and that's honestly a lot of what we see in humans as well, too, right? Or even in terms of like, like, you know, falling to temptation, depending on what the category of temptation, like, you know, you might be really not tempted by certain things like food, but, you know, something like video games and you're like, okay, I can't resist, whatever. So, so yeah, so it's, it seems to be pretty context specific. And then it also can be affected by certain external factors. So what my master's thesis looked at was arousal level in dogs or kind of excitement levels. And as is probably no surprise to to you and the people listening, that plays a big role. And what was interesting was we, the way that we tested this was we had, you know, an impulse control task, which was a clear barrier. So imagine like a V-shaped, it was actually like, you know, like a garment rack with a clear shower curtain, you know, really high tech equipment here. And it would be like in a V and I'd be sort of behind it at the apex, the treat. And then I would either call the dog in a calm, like monotone voice, like, come here. Or I'd be like, up here. You know, in like a high pitched, excited voice. And what was interesting is that, again, maybe unsurprisingly, the excitement level mattered. But but what was cool is that we actually tested dogs from Canine Companions, so the service dog versus pet dogs that came into the Duke Canine Cognition Center. So again, these are going to be more of a grab bag. But what we did is we went back and looked at, and this is sort of a rough proxy for their just like overall excitement level before the task even started because we walked them around the apparatus so they could see what what it was all about and we looked at their tail wagging levels and so we found that like 
the pet dogs are wagging off the bat are wagging their tail about twice the rate of the service dog. So I think just reinforcing what we would expect, which is, you know, the service dogs are pretty calm, whether that be through breeding, training, probably both, right? Whereas in general, the pet dogs are just, you know, a more excitable bunch. Not that surprising. But so what was interesting is that in the dogs where we started with the like high, high excitement condition, that was really difficult for the pet dogs, right? They, or not even if we, like, I guess you could start with, well, we counterbalanced it. So you started with different ones, but let's say they had just done the low arousal condition. They do it no problem five times. Great. Then we do the high arousal condition, even though they've just solved the problem five times, no problem. As soon as you do that, they're like running into the barrier. They're like, I can't, my mind is blown. Like they're, they're over the edge, right? And their problem solving is like out the window. For the service dogs, they actually performed better at the high arousal condition. So it was almost like the low arousal condition, they were just like still asleep. <laughs> they like needed that extra boost to get to like their optimal performance. Whereas I think the pet dogs in general, right? These are broad generalizations, but that group is sort of already at their optimal level. And if you add on any more, now they're, they're too over aroused. They're not going to do well. So I think all of that is to say that obviously excitement level is a factor that can impact impulse control. And you're going to want to kind of individualize it based on the dog, right? So if you have a really, really mellow dog in a that sort of scenario or a training scenario, right? This could be kind of across different contexts. You kind of maybe want to amp them up, right? Because that's going to help them focus. Whereas if you have a dog that's already over the top, it's not going to help matter. You're going to kind of want to bring it down a notch. Yeah. So... And this is very consistent with the Yerkes Dotson. And it's funny because people talk about Yerkes Dotson all the time. And at one point, I spent a fair amount of time trying to find research to support it. And I didn't find a lot specific to arousal because he really talks about arousal and not stress. And this is one of the few studies that I was able to find that provides data that is consistent. Not that there's other studies that have inconsistent data. There just doesn't seem to be a whole lot, maybe in humans. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I thought in humans, there was like a study where it's like they use like coffee, right? Like caffeine. And it's like, oh, that makes sense, right? Because that's like, and then like a go, no go task or whatever, you know, like a, a common sort of human impulse control task. But yes. Yeah. it Yes. We do talk about the Yerkes Dotson law in the paper and how it consistent with right that. and what that suggests is that a moderate level of arousal is sort of ideal for task performance and if you're too low then you don't you're not really motivated enough to try hard enough and if you're too excited you're running into the shower curtain yes and, it, yeah yeah well, and, and interesting too and it's because i think especially if you look at the yerkes dotson law it's also so it's like the moderate level for sure but it's in a cognitively complex task so like it might be different if it was just like a very simple no, but it's sort of interesting like that that's kind of a piece of it as well. So which impulse control would fall into that? Yeah, yeah, it's important to remember, right? Because something that doesn't require that same level of cognitive investment or involvement may not be subject to that same relationship. Relationship, yeah. yeah. So, but it's yeah, it's really really interesting, and I think that 
helps us understand why once dogs reach a certain level of arousal that their brain goes out the window. I call it falling off the cliff with the reactive dogs. It's like once they're gone, they're gone. And you, all you can do is get out of there and wait for them to come back because the brain goes off. Well, I shouldn't say the brain goes offline because the brain is clearly still working. But the the cognitive part of the brain goes offline at that point. So, yeah. All right. So we're just about out of time. And I wanted to wrap up with asking you what unanswered questions are at the top of your mind right now, or, or what kinds of research questions do you think we should be focusing on next in this field? Yeah. So, so many things. I <laughs> No, but I think, so a lot of my work thus far and a lot of what we've talked about today has really focused on development. And I think that's important and we should continue to focus on that. I and mean, there's a lot to still uncover there. But I've also recently become really interested in sort of the other end of the lifespan and this idea of cognitive aging and sort yes. of, you know, what happens as dogs get older in terms of their cognitive function. And both in terms of, right, kind of same question as with the development, like what does it even look like? What's normal? And then also sort of down the line, how can we intervene and improve? Like, what are the factors that affect that? And, and, and how can we impact those positively? So that is, I've been doing some work with the Dog Aging Project. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Is That's, that out of Hungary? Is that? Well, so there's, that, that, what is that? Yes, they've been doing some aging stuff too. The or like the family dog. That's the family dog project. Yeah, but I think they have family like dog a, project. Yeah. Yes, and they have a biobank as well. Yeah, but but that so the dog aging project is based out of I would say the University of Washington and Texas A and M mainly, although a lot of university or a lot of researchers from many universities are involved. But it's basically this currently five year NIH funded project that is enrolling like people enroll their pet dogs i think they're up to forty thousand pet dogs it's part of their pack and then it has some smaller more focused cohort so one of which which they call triad is actually an intervention so it's like a, a clinical blinded intervention where looking at the effect of rapamycin on aging dogs so a drug trial basically and then there's Another cohort where, you know, they'll send out swabs so people can send in DNA for their dogs. But the the bigger project, the 40,000 dogs, is people just fill out a survey once a year on their dog. I think it takes maybe like three hours. So it's like a very, very detailed survey. But, you know, everything from the dog's health history to their breed, to their birth date, to their environment, you know. All these things that can then be tracked longitudinally and dogs are still they're still enrolling. I think one sort of or misunderstanding is people hear dog aging project and then they only sign up their dog if it's really old. But I think they want puppies to sign up so they can kind of follow them through the life course. Right. And and then get, you know, these large number numbers to get the power to ask kind of broad, basic questions that we don't really have a good grasp on or we don't know, like how things like breed affect it because we haven't had the numbers. But so one piece of it that is related to this cognitive aging that our group has been helping with is that there's so 
owner, like I said, they fill out these surveys, but then they can also opt in to do different sort of tasks, like citizen science tasks with their dogs. And so one is this like aging, cognitive aging task, right, where they sort of build some little boxes and then it's kind of like a memory game for their dog and they follow the instructions and report back. And then we get data once a year or maybe it's every six months. I'm not, I can't remember exactly, but you know, on how their dog is performing. And then you can also look at it compared to like the demographics that they fill out in the questionnaire. I think there's also like a cognitive survey questionnaire that they fill out. So kind of a cool citizen science approach to getting data launch again, longitudinally, which will be really interesting too, as the dogs age, right? And get older and to see sort of what are the patterns and then what what's affecting it, right? So some of our hypotheses that we're interested in looking at are things like physical activity. And I think the hope too is to sort of, again, in a subset of participants, get physical, act, like actographs, um, like, like a Fitbit for your dog, right? On the dog. So we actually have not just owner reported, you know, this is how active my dog is, but here's actual data on, you know, this week, how active the dog was, what their pattern of activity was, that sort of thing. So anyway, that is a question that I've become interested in. It's so exciting right now to be in this <laughs> field and and paying attention to the science because there's so much that's happening. And yes, you, yes. You said that the subjects are still being accepted for the cognitive study. Yep. So you may not have it off the top of your head. We can plug it in later. But do you know where if listeners are interested in signing up, where they would go? I think it's the, the Dog Aging Project website. So I think it's dogagingproject.com. Or dogagingproject.org. .org. Okay, perfect. And I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm sure that we will have listeners that will want to go sign up for this. Yes, so. please. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Emily. This was really great. And I love talking with you today. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Research Bytes podcast. If you enjoyed this content and would like to learn more, please visit www.sciencemattersllc.com for more information. You can also find the link in the podcast description. The website has information on upcoming events, as well as my monthly research webinars and upcoming courses. I hope to see you there. Thank you.